Um, all right, well, good morning. Welcome to the fifth installment of Church History for this go-around. Uh, today, we're going to continue to talk about the uh, modern missionary movement, which occurred in the 19th century. Um, and in particular today, I want to talk about two, um, two missionaries uh, of note, um, one to Africa and one to Asia, to China. Uh, the one to Africa would be David Livingston, and the other one would be Hudson Taylor to China. Um, I kind of picked out these two because they're kind of both involved in um, finding um, new peoples to reach out to. So they're, they're kind of um, exploring new areas and unreached peoples of the earth as they uh, participate in missions activity in the 19th century. And both of them left um, great legacies that inspired further missionary work um, after they died and in the next century to century and a half. So if we could, if you could turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. This is the Apostle Paul in his defense of his apostleship talking about um, what his goal is as he himself does missions. So 2 Corinthians 10, 14 through 16. Read with me. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. I think this scripture and description of Paul uh, that he uses to talk about going to unreached peoples and to take further, um, go further places with the gospel can be evidenced in the lives of both David Livingston and Hudson Taylor. So let's pray to the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you with uh, humble hearts, Lord, understanding that we are a needy people and that we are sinful and we're in need of your grace daily, Lord. And Lord, I just pray as we consider your church, Lord, that we would um, understand that you are building your church and you have built your church, Lord. Um, and as we consider your servants, David Livingston and Hudson Taylor, Lord, I pray that we would see them as men used by your hand, empowered by your grace, but Lord, dependent upon your grace as they were not perfect, Lord. We pray that we would um, worship you more as we see your sovereign hand at work in the building of your church and in the history of your church, Lord. Lord, help me be um, uh, effective today, Lord, to, to teach what you would have me to teach. Lord, thank you so much for this time. We ask that you would bless it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so last week, remember, we kind of talked about a couple things. Um, First of all, I hope you have a handout. Joe was passing those out, so if you need one, he'll find you, or somebody will find you because I don't see the Joe. It's all right. Um, last week, we talked about the beginnings of the modern missionary movement in the 19th century. Um, we talked about the first great missionary at the close of the 18th century who was uh, William Carey and his mission to India and how he used Bible translation church planting and evangelism to uh, spur on the Indian people. Um, we also talked about the establishment of missionary societies who came together in a lot of times uh, across denominational lines to um, 
establish missionary plans uh, to, to reach the nations for Christ. Uh, today, I wanted to kind of take uh, a couple um, missionaries and give like a biographical uh, sketch on two of them and talk about some of the things that they did and the legacies that they had left. Um, the first one we'll talk about, I've coined him the missionary explorer, is David Livingston. Um, his name, I've heard it pronounced both, David Livingston or David Livingstone. Um, at one point in his life, he added the E to his name, so I don't know if he wants to be Stone or Stun, but I'm going with Livingston because I've heard more people say that. Uh, so if you want to talk about that, we can. It doesn't really matter. Uh, but in the 19th century, if you asked people, just common people, Christians in America or in England, to name a missionary, most of them would give you the name of David Livingston. Uh, even today, he's considered a, considered a larger-than-life evangelical figure for his efforts in Africa. Um, many non-Christians, though, see him as uh, the one that brought imperial Britain to the center part of Africa. And even some evangelicals believe he was not much of a missionary because he didn't do a lot of church planting and a lot of evangelism. Um, and he didn't show, didn't result in a whole lot of disciples of his own. He didn't translate the Bible and he didn't tr plant churches. So was he really a missionary? We'll talk about that as we consider his life. Yet the results of his work opened up a large continent, which was Africa, and to help to eliminate the world's dependence on the African slave trade. Um, so let's talk about his early life. That's just kind of a, a summary of his life. He lived from 1813 to 1873. He grew up in a working-class Scottish home in Scotland, obviously. By the time he was 10, he was working full-time in the local cotton mill. So he was one of these child laborers uh, we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, he was able, though, thankfully, the business he worked for um, offered school in the evening. So he would work until about 7 or 8 every night and then go to school for a couple hours every night. Um, and there he uh, excelled as a student, and he had the opportunity. Um, he excelled so much that he had the opportunity to go to a university as he grew as, of age. So when he went to the university, he studied medicine. Not only did he study medicine, though, he also studied theology. So he got his MD and his, I guess his MDiv, I don't know, uh, at the same time. So try doing that if you're in college right now. It would be very difficult, I'm sure. Uh, but he was a man of amazing work ethic and, um, and drive. Um, so he graduates, and he, there's a famous missionary at the time in England by the name of, or who, who, who is English, by the name of Robert Moffat. This is number one on your study sheet. David Livingston was inspired at an early age by Robert Moffat, M-O-F-F-A-T, who was one of the first English missionaries to Africa. He was a pioneer missionary in South Africa who planted churches, translated the Bible into the native tongue, uh, uh, discipled uh, natives there to become leaders in the church and in the area of education as well. He was the most prominent man at the time, this is Moffat, in the United King Kingdom for missions. He informed the great the people of Great Britain, so as he, he comes back and gives reports and people are interested and intrigued to hear from him, um, he informed the people in Great Britain that there were millions of people perishing in Africa who had, of course, never heard of Christ. And he referred to Africa uh, as the dark continent. 
influence, the second blank, since there was very little Christian influence. There was involvement with Europeans in Africa, of course, um, and in it for America as well, but it was because of the slave trade. Um, so that was kind of the understanding that the African natives had of the Europeans was that of the slave trade. Uh, one of Moffat's famous quotes is that inspired Livingston to missions was, I have sometimes seen in the morning sun the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary has ever been. So that quote was inspirational for Livingston to consider uh, missions as a field. So in 1838, uh, at about the age of 25, Livingston goes to London and becomes a missionary for the London Missionary Society, which was a non-denominational society. It was one of these uh, societies that was made up of conservative uh, Anglicans or evangelical Anglicans, Methodists, Baptists, Congregationalists, all coming together to support worldwide missions. So Livingston becomes a missionary for that um, society. He, uh, he initially didn't think he needed to be part of a society, but decided that it would be necessary for him to have support, uh, that he would be part of one of these societies that was already established. Um, he initially wanted to go to China, despite being heavily influenced by Robert Moffat. He, he thought China was the place for him to go. However, he wasn't able to go there um, because at the time there was some guess, geo-economic issues between China and England and the European powers, and it was the Opium Wars. I didn't study that, but I kind of have some idea of what that is. But they're warring over the, the supply and demand of opium and then the amount of money that China should recover from that. Um, that was a major trade avenue for the Chinese at the time. Um, so he, he was not able to go to China like he wanted to, so he set course for the African continent. He quickly um, determines that when he gets to Africa, that he needs to go further inland than the uh, already established areas of European colonialism. So that's number, number three. After a short time in South Africa, he believed it was necessary to make treks further inland. He believed that the Christian near the coast was too easily represented by those Europeans who were engaging in the slave trade industry. So you kind of see this is the how this is the perception of Christianity to a lot of the natives is that they're involved in that Christians or Europeans who would call themselves Christians are participating in the slave trade. So Livingston thought that he needed to go somewhere that was not poisoned by the slave traders, um, and even some of the traders that were there obviously held this belief felt that the natives did not even have souls, so they didn't believe that they should be evangelized. These traders are primarily um, some uh, descendants of some initial settlements in South Africa. It's called the Boers, B-O-E-R-S, and also the Portuguese. They had been participants with the Arabs. There's, there's this whole thing, I didn't even know about this, I don't know if y'all know this, that the first people to enslave the Africans out of, to take the Africans out of Africa and enslave them were the Arabs. And that had been going on for centuries probably five or six hundred years, 
people from the Middle East were coming and stealing people from Africa and creating them and making or making them slaves um, in in uh, in the Middle East. But they the Arabs kind of then helped the Europeans that had an interest in that as well. Um, so the the Boers and the Portuguese were involved in the Arab slave trade, and then those were then traded to America and other places as well, and other colonial efforts by England and other uh, Protestant states. Livingston was appalled by the slave trade. He called it the open sore of Africa, and it was quickly depopulating the continent. I mean, people were leaving or being traded, sold in slavery in droves. Very lucrative industry as well. Um, so let, just a refresher about time frame here. Eight, when we talked about three weeks ago about William Wilberforce, 1807, the, I guess, I don't remember the name, the Anti-Slave Trade Act, where slave trading was declared illegal in the European, or in, in the British Empire. So there was no opportunity for the British to legally uh, uh, trade slaves uh, in the colonies. 1832, slavery as a whole was banned by the British Empire. So this is after that. So interesting enough, after 1832, the British, they abolished slavery in their lands, but um, slave trade actually increased because of the demand that was needed in particular colonial areas and in the southern United States especially. So there's slavery is rampant, and the slave trade is rampant at this time, and Livingston is appalled by it. Um, 1845, he marries uh, a woman by the name of Mary Moffat. It's the daughter of his missionary hero, uh, Robert Moffat. She grew up in Africa, and so she was very involved in David's expeditions. His first expeditions that he took to the inland of Africa were in 1850 and 1851. And Mary goes, and they have a couple small children at that point, and they go too on these um on these treks, and their goal in these treks is to find additional waterways that go from the southern part of Africa up into the inlands, inland parts of Africa, so that they can begin to have trade and stuff like that and have routes for missionaries to get to the interior of Africa. So that was his goal in 1850 and 1851. 1852, oh, at that point, though, he returns to England and leaves his wife there, and he goes on a uh, kind of a circuit explaining his works and what he'd seen in Africa. And he has become, he's become very popular, you know, at that time because of his, his stories that he could tell. I think there's a story about him, and this might be legend, fighting off a lion um, that was attacking. And it, they actually, the lion actually in the, in the course of the struggle broke his arm. And, uh, and he was actually weak in the arm forever because it was set so improperly in the villages of Africa. Um, I don't know how severely he fought the lion, but I'm sure it's something more of a myth. Um, but he, he was attacked. Um, in 1852, he left um, London and went back to Africa. And this is kind of his, there's several um, more, I guess, tours he made of Africa to discover different parts of it. Um, but this is probably his greatest one. It was a 6,000-mile trek. It's, it's, um, Livingston and a whole bunch of African natives that have become his assistants on his tours. Um, and it took four years on foot, um, four years to cover, cover 6,000 miles. He was meticulous in his 
in his map making and his geog geographical skills. At this, in this, uh, this trek, this tour, um, he began to espouse his belief in commerce, Christianity, and civilization. That's number four on your notes. So his emphasis is not purely just missional. It is also um, commerce and uh, helping to bring the Africans to a more civilized society. He thought those three components would be to the benefit of the African people for generations. Also on this um, tour, he mapped the route of the Zambezi River, along with other waterways that kind of showed ways to into the interior of the continent. And he located Victoria Falls, assumingly named for Queen Victoria. So in this commerce, Christianity, and civilization, that was his best strategy. He, he thought it was the best strategy to spread the gospel and to eradicate the slave trade and its effects. Um, later, though, some historians, secular historians, I'll say, uh, believe that this created an avenue for British imperialism, um, which is an interesting study. But at this time, it was believed to be the best way to create a way out of the current situation. So what you had here is you had all these native tribes in the interior of Africa. So how were they all, how was the slave trade impacting them? Well, you had these Arab traders and these European people that had a demand for slaves. And what would happen is these rival tribes who didn't have respect for each other um, would go and kidnap people out of the neighboring tribes. They would take those people then to these slave traders. There's this great market for, for slaves. So there's this idea that it was tribe upon tribe stealing away from each other in order to provide slaves for this uh, gross slave uh, industry. Um, but this was one of the things that, uh, that uh, Livingston would say. This is, what, this is what propelled him in his endeavors to, to explore new lands. He says, cannot the love of Christ carry the missionary where the slave trade carries the traitor? I shall open up a path to the interior or perish. So he was striving to show new lands that were obviously okay for the slave traders to go to. So how come I can't show these new lands, map out these new lands to propel people to missionary service in those lands? So he's kind of the, the, the harbinger, the one that's going to do this first to show people that you can go in there and more missionaries go there in the future. Um, so that's, that's his long five-year tour in, uh, eight, that began in 1852. Um, and in 1858, I did not mention this, as he goes back in 1852, he goes by himself. He's not part of the London Missionary Society any longer. His popularity and his, his lectures and even the, uh, he wrote a book or two um, were able to give him the wealth. And then he also had some wealthy benefactors that supported him in his uh, trek at 1852. So in 1858, more private donations came in, and he had greater wealth still to where he could organize another um, trip to Africa. So he had another one in 1858 through 1863, which they called the Zambezi Exploration. And at this time, Mary Moffat dies during this exploration because she was with him. And this, this um, trek was sponsored by the Royal Geogra Geography Society of England. 
uh, and its goal was to continue to look for new waterways into the center of Africa that were not controlled by the slave-hungry Portuguese. So there's all these tributaries and waterways and rivers and stuff flowing from, uh, I guess, south into South Africa. However, the primary routes were controlled by the Portuguese, who were very involved in the um, slave trade. Um, the Zambezi exploration did not result in any great uh, findings, so it pretty much failed. What they did find, though, was a great piece of agricultural land in the land of what is currently Malawi. Um, so that was, was a long tenured uh, trek that he had. Um, then he goes back in 1866 for a third or fourth tour, and this is where he dies in 1873. His goal here is to seek out the source of the Nile. He was supported by private donations to keep looking for additional waterways. So he's on this thing for seven years on this trek, and he it's him and probably like 20 to 25 African assistants, and no one has heard from him. And a man, an, actually an American journalist, goes to Africa looking for him. He's taking off on these routes that he thinks that, uh, that Livingston would take, and they run into each other. So there's one white guy and another white guy, and he hasn't seen a white guy in five years. And this is where you get the famous quote. This guy's name was H.M. Stanley, and he comes upon Livingston, and he says, Dr. Livingston, I presume? Um, it's a very popular saying, but I never knew that. Um, so he, on this, in this, his last exploration mission, he dies. And his African helpers took his body to the coast after he dies. Actually, first they took his heart out and buried it in Africa because that's where his heart belonged, according to his, his friends. And they traveled um, some 1,500 miles to the coast to put his body on a ship going back to England. Not only did they put the body on the ship, they followed it all the way to England. And there he was interred at Westminster Abbey, but his, his assistant showed great personal allegiance to him. Not much evidence, though, in his writings, though, that would show, or in his journals, that those people ever came to faith. Um, and there's not a lot of evidence. This is Livingston is an explorer, primarily. He's not out there preaching to every tribe as he goes. He's just trying to find new ways and new avenues for future missionaries to go. Um, so most of his career was not even in the service of a missionary society, but more as an individual explorer. So as one uh, teacher I read said, was he really a missionary? Uh, I think we'd have to conclude to some degree, yes. I have a quote here, number five, and this was kind of his driving um, emphasis of his life. He says, the end of the geographical feat, that's his explorations, is but the beginning of the missionary enterprise. I take the latter term as the most extended significant signification and include every effort made for the amelioration of our race, the promotion of those means by which God and his providence is working in bringing all his dealings with man to a glorious consummation. And what that would be is the work of missions in Central Africa. I have some notes here about reviewing the slave trade, but we talked about that 1807-1832. Uh, the, as we said, the transatlantic slave trade was greater due to the increased demands of the United States um, cotton industry. What Livingston wanted to do, besides open up these lands for missions, was he wanted to strike a major blow against Africa, which he saw as the scourge of Africa, the slavery of Africa, which he saw as the scourge of Africa. This was causing, obviously, the, the continent to be depopulated. 
He loved the Africans and hated the impact of slavery. He was good in their cultures and his languages. He was rather gifted in that. And there's still a legacy in Africa of Livingston. There's monuments and statues in his honor. There's towns named after him, things like that. There's a couple things he wanted to do as he explored these lands besides opening them up for the people. Number one, he, what he wanted to do was he wanted to find tracts of land that were well enough watered that could be farmed. So this is the, kind of the commerce side of his goal that could be farmed and then products could be exported so that the people of Africa could be independent of the slave trade. So he's, he's going, he's like, I'm looking for large plots of land where we can grow something. And the second thing would be that he wanted to grow cotton in Africa. And he wanted it to be run by the free people of Africa. Um, so he wanted to introduce the idea of cotton co-ops run by free men. That was his goal. And his thought was, hey, there's a ready market for cotton already in the world with the textile industry in Europe. And where are they getting all their cotton right now? from people that are producing it via the slave industry. Um, he thought, since there was a ready market, that secondly, that that would lessen the European dependence on the American cotton industry, thus striking a major blow against slavery worldwide, and there would be less need for the slave trade. So that's a pretty ambitious and global idea that he had. Um, in his life, however, his hopes weren't realized. Uh, they never, during his lifetime, Britain never got great control over the riverways that were going inland to the coast. They were always, uh, during his life, in control by the Portuguese, despite his appeals to the government to, uh, to do some things politically um, to open up those waterways. They did not, um, hoping that there would be more free trade routes. Um, the um, Eventually, though, 20 years after his life, uh, some of these things began to come to realization. Um, his intent, though, also was not purely commercial, but it was also to open areas for future missions. The generations that followed him did not, did have similar zeal that he did for the African people. Um, he stressed not only commerce and Christianity, but also civilization. Uh, British civilization is what he would recommend for the people because in Britain there was no slavery. So that was the, the civilization part of his, his uh, rallying cry. Um, but there's not much evidence of, uh, this is a critique of Livingston, I guess, that he cried out to the Africans to repent. Um, there's, there's, it, he was more enraptured with the geography as opposed to the missional enterprise for himself personal, personally. There's little in his works. I mean, you could take all this. He, was, he documented everything in his journals. There's little emphasis on evangelism, evangelism, discipleship, Bible translation, or church planning. His whole focus was his dream of commerce, Christianity, and civilization. So he's the explorer, geographer, slash missionary whose role was to see that the Christ's kingdom would be available to others to preach in these new opened areas in Africa. Um, in the decades after his death, though, many missionaries went into the interior, interior of Africa and set up schools and medical facilities to minister to the native people. Um, his efforts combined with faith with several other components, but Christ was the driving force for his love for the Africans and his des desire to see the end of the slave trade. So he's kind of this introductory figure into Christian missions into Africa. 
um, which expands greater in the years following him. So he died in, I'm going to tell you, let's say, 1873. So that is David Livingston. So that's Africa. Well, now I wanted to talk about a missionary in Asia, and that's Hudson Taylor, who is the missionary of the Chinese people. Um, he lived from 1832 to 1905. So in just like in Africa, people were, there was a lot of colonial emphasis in southern Africa because that's where the coast is. There's a lot of trade, a lot of commercial interest. The same kind of situation in China. Uh, there's a lot of uh, commercial emphasis in China on the coast, but there was kind of a neglect at the time to minister to the interior of China, which obviously is huge. And uh, that's where, where Hudson Taylor comes into play. He was born in 1832 to a Methodist layman's preacher's family. Um, as a youth, he was interested in missions. And at 17, he was converted, and he um, des desired to become a missionary, and a missionary to China. Um, he studied um, several things. Medicine, it's kind of a reoccurring theme for these guys, that they were had medical training. He also studied Greek, Latin, and you don't have room to write all this, but I put Chinese language and culture. As he prepares to become a missionary, he moves to London, and he begins to live what he would call the missionary's life in England because he doesn't think that if, if you can't do it in London, how are you going to do it in China? So he lived a humble lifestyle. That's your blank there. Um, in the poor part of London, he slept on the floor. He ate cheaply. He ate solely a diet of dark bread and apples what the difference between dark bread and light bread is. Maybe it's cheaper um, flour. Um, his room where he stayed was hardly heated. He slept on the floor. Uh, so he, he was without the basic comforts of most of uh, English society that they had. So, so he, uh, his lifestyle in London can be described as humble since he was preparing for a missionary life of sacrifice. So he wanted to be Discipline, and one that's the characteristic. One of the characteristics you can describe Hudson Taylor with was discipline um, and drive. I guess uh, he went and became a member of a missionary society. Here's the reoccurring theme: um, these men were involved in these societies. The society he was involved in was called the Chinese Evangelization Society. That was his sending agency in 1853. All right, so when there are some geopolitical issues going on when Livingston, about 10 years before, was trying to go to China, and those had been resolved. So the first opium war had been resolved 10 years before. Um, this is kind of um, another thing that was kind of going on that in the in the geopolitical side of things was Japan was opened up to Westerners. So people were going into Japan as well at that time. And as I said, the Opium War had been concluded. Uh, the Chinese Evangel Evangelization Society, we're going to call it the CES, because I don't, can't say evangelization. Uh, the CES served in six specific cities along the coast of China. Um, so 
there was great British involvement there. There was a lot of commercial interests. There was a lot of trade going on. And a lot of times the missionaries that were there, according to Hudson Taylor, were just kind of there to be with the other British. They weren't really there to m do missionary work with the people of China. And oftentimes there was no difference between uh, English society in England and English society in China. So he did not like that. His agency wasn't the best, and oftentimes they failed to give him his salary. They didn't have the funds. So he was forced to depend on the other Englishmen there, like missionaries and diplomats, for his basic needs. He didn't like that. He was embarrassed by that. So he started going outside of the English areas and meeting and ministering to the Chinese people. And when he did that, he didn't go in his English attire. He began dressing like the Chinese, growing his hair like them. This was very unseemly for a man of English reputation. But that's one of the marks of his ministry, is that he embraced the cultures of the Chinese. Um, he resigned in 1857 from the CES, and at that time he resolved to live by faith. So we mentioned last week that there's groups started that were called faith missions, and that is Hudson Taylor. He's a missionary of a faith mission, and this is his motto um, in living by faith was God's work done in God's time will never lack supply. A man of great faith. Was his, that was his lifelong motto. He met his English wife there in China in 1858. 1860, he returned to England due to some several health reasons. Um, when he's in England, though, he begins to say, hey, we are neglecting the interior provinces of China. We're not impacting them at all with the gospel. So I guess there's seven at the time, seven provinces that border the coast that were heavily infiltrated by the, by the English. But there was 11 interior provinces that no one was going to to minister. So he was saying, we've got to get to these 11 provinces. We've got to reach, we've got to preach to the people um, that have not ever heard the gospel at all. So he wants to go there. So he's trying to build up support there. Well, he goes to the other societies that were ministering to China at the time, and no one would um, support him to do that. Um, he, uh, they lacked, that there was not resources to do that according to these societies. There was enough financial support for that of an endeavor because it would have been expensive. They lacked both military and diplomatic support that the missionaries had along the coast because of the great English influence. And there was no commercial links, obviously. And there was even worse communication at the time for the interior. Um, but in 1865, he begins his own society. He is kind of inspired by this thought. He believes that there was one million Chinese people dying each month, and obviously none of them hearing the gospel. And he actually game, became really upset with the English uh, society. And he says, can all the Christians in England sit still with folded arms while these multitudes are perishing? Perishing for lack of knowledge, for lack of that knowledge which England possesses so richly. So he's saying, we have this gospel. Why, why are we content just to sit here? It's probably a good message for us today as well. Um, so he began praying that in 1865 that he would get 24 willing, skillful servants to accompany him back to, to China. 
Now, these he did not require that they be theologically trained. He just wanted people that were willing to do the hard work of evangelism. That's what he would believe. So he established the China Inland Mission and returns to China in 1866. And he had 24 servants go with him. 1870, his wife dies. He remarried a year later, and his other wife eventually dies on the field as well. In total, he lost two wives and four children to fama, famine or disease contracted on the mission field. Um, and then uh, over 30 years later, he before he died, 1900, 58 of his missionaries and 21 of their children died due to the Boxer Rebellion in China. Those things are important to say because there's a high price for taking the gospel to China, and both Taylor and his, his organization founded, uh, found what those were. He said this, China is not won by quiet, ease-loving men and women. The stamp of men and women we need is such as will put Jesus, China, and souls first and foremost in everything and at every time. Even life itself must be secondary. So um, he was greatly um, inspired that the gospel was worth even risking his life and the life of his fellow missionaries. By the time that he died in 1905, I believe I told you, um, there were 800 missionaries to China through his organization. And just, that's just his organization, and that they had led 25,000 people to Christ. Um, that was one quarter of the Protestant missionaries to China at the time, his 800 at the time of his death. And by, by World War II, they had 1,200 missionaries, and over 100,000 Chinese were claiming uh, to be Christians. However, this is well after he died, though many of those were killed when the communists took over after World War II. And then there was a, a continual ministry to the, it's kind of like these, some of the Christians that didn't get killed or imprisoned at the time when the communists took over, this is in the 40s, um, some of the Christians left China and went to the surrounding countries around China, and that's referred to as the Chinese diaspora, which is like the, the um, Israelites when they, got, they left um, Israel and were spread across all the other lands in the Middle East. Um, but their, um, Taylor's organization continued to minister to those people and into the interior of China. Today, his ministry is no longer called the China Inland Mission. It's called the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, which still carries on a great work. Um, the other blank I have for you on number nine, he emphasized that his fellow workers should embrace the Chinese language and culture. We already kind of didn't touch on that yet. So what did Taylor do? What were his methods? What was, what was the labor of his missionary work? Number one, it was a faith mission. Letter A. His missionaries or his agency could not solicit money outrightly. They would say what their needs were, but they wouldn't say, hey, Give me 20 bucks and we can make sure this happens. Um, no, they didn't solicit funds. They were dependent upon God to provide for their needs. They didn't talk about them too much. Uh, secondly, the field missionaries were responsible for the direction. So field missionaries responsible for the direction of the ministry. I did not give you all enough room. Uh, the direction of missionary work was done from the field. 
Home office was to keep prayer and donor support apprised of the work, but they weren't making the decisions about how they were going to effectuate uh, and um, the I guess the troops on the ground. Um, the people there directly, Hudson Taylor was there in China. He was leading things, but they had a home office in London that was there to provide both prayer and financial to collect the financial support they did get, um, and to promote the idea of getting more volunteers to go onto the field. Um, number three, this is similar to number nine I gave you, but all missionaries expected to be in the culture. They're not supposed to be, you know, English men or English women. They're supposed to be um, in the culture of the Chinese. So it was expected that they would dress. They would do the normal customs that weren't um, non-Christian, I guess. Um, that they were supposed to live in the culture and to speak Chinese. Uh, they were supposed to be full-time evangelists. It's all letter C. They did not, however, this is not one of the points, though, do a lot of church planting on their own, like that they supported. But number four, they were interdenominational. So this, they're not just... Baptist or Methodist or Congregationalists, they accepted believers of all of those denominations to be missionaries. Taylor believed that the missionaries should not compete against each other uh, and that they should not promote their denominational distinctives. I don't know how that really works sometimes when someone comes to faith and you've got to baptize them. How are you going to baptize them? It seems like something controversial. But in order to avoid those controversies, they stationed like-minded people together to minimize those doctrinal, I guess, controversies. So uh, I don't know how they really did that. I mean, it seems like you would need to have an idea of what we do. How does a believer, a newly converted believer, exhibit his faith? I mean, how does he say, proclaim to everyone, I'm now a believer? And when he gets baptized, do you sprinkle him? Do you immerse him? I mean, those things like that are questions. But somehow it worked for the CIM. The fifth point that they required was uh, children of missionaries attended a boarding school. And it was a CIM boarding school in China. So the parents only really the parents only saw the children two times a year during winter and summer break. This boarding school became the best school in uh, uh, China and it actually was it became like the uh, the diplomats and the People that were there for commercial commercial interests oftentimes wanted to send their kids there as well when there was opportunities at time for that to happen. Um, but to some degree, that impacted the uh, the uh, the it lessened the impact that the people the evangelists had on the Chinese people because they kind of didn't see them living out life. They didn't see them with their children, with their family. How do you respond to your children in love? Well, they didn't have their children, so how could they? Know, truly show the Chinese how to properly parent children. So it just kind of changed the dynamic, and I think that's a critique we could have of, of the China Inland Mission. Um, and there's several other critiques I have, so this is because we don't want to paint these picture picture of these guys as being perfect. We have to point out some of the flaws. Uh, it, Taylor himself didn't have a great plan in the China Inland Mission to plant local connected churches. Um, it was evangelism, 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 but then there was a, a breaking point somewhere where they did not 
connect them to local churches. Uh, he burned with zeal for evangelism for what he called the million per month who were dying without hearing the gospel. Some of his missionaries, though, did plant churches, which survived and have even survived during the communist takeover. And then natives who you know, were reading the scriptures for themselves after coming to Christ due to these evangelistic efforts also began starting their own churches. And what's interesting is China is a collective-based society. You know, it's not as individualistic as America, or at this time it wasn't, obviously, as America or even Great Britain. And the establishment of churches this probably would have gone, uh, gone well with the type of society they had, but that was not Taylor's emphasis. It would be appropriate that there be a mix. This is how it should have gone and should go probably in all missions work. But there should be a mix of evangelism, discipleship, and the establishment of local churches wherever those are possible. But the thing that Hudson Taylor did do was that he contextualized the gospel. He put it into the, he lived out and preached the gospel looking like and living in the culture of the people, which was quite inspirational. His life and his commitment, the faith that he had for God to provide um, for all of his uh, uh, missionary endeavors was inspirational to the next generation. And several people claim him as their missional hero, and that would include Amy Carmichael, Eric Little, Chariots of Fire, and, uh, and Jim Elliott as well. So, um, and China um, still has, and now has a thriving Christian culture, um, despite the point of much suffering that could come their way for being Christians. Um, but it was Hudson Taylor that initial, his initial wave of work into the interior of the continent that um, paved a way for Christianity. Um, so you can kind of see that as these are unreached peoples, both in Livingston, his opening up the African comp continent to more missionaries, and then Taylor in the uh, China Inland Mission going to the interior to where people had not heard the gospel. They're both opening, through God's grace, new avenues for the gospel to, to be preached to unreached peoples, which is kind of a goal for missions, is that we're trying to see that God's the gospel would be declared to all the peoples, and that's what is going to happen eventually throughout the entire world. And this is kind of in the 19th century, not only going to the places that um, where there's commercial-friendly uh, British society, which are taking it further to China and to um, into Africa. So I commend both these guys to you. They're uh, great stalwarts of the faith in the sense that they depended upon God for everything. And um, I appreciate that. That's all I've got. Um, I have about run out of time. So let's pray and uh, we can go forth. Hope you guys have a Merry Christmas. We do not have Sunday school next week. We have one church service, I think, at 10. Uh, so I'll have the week off. Uh, but we do have Sunday School on January 1st, which will be our last installment of um, church history. Let's pray. Generally, Father, Lord, we praise you, Lord, for how you're working in this world, Lord, to bring many to know you um, through your servants, Lord. Lord, help us, Lord, as we consider Hudson Taylor and David Livingston, Lord, help us be challenged to see uh, uh, the efforts to reach the lost people of this earth, Lord, as uh, important. Lord, I pray that that would be part of our daily prayers. Lord, that would be part of our uh, our giving of our finances, Lord, to support agencies like that, Lord, so that we would be participants, Lord, in uh, the great work you're doing to reach, the, to reach the unreached peoples of the earth. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to be together, Lord. I pray that you would give us a, a great day today as we rest in you and as we um, worship you today, Lord. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.